Okay, so the song that I was singing this morning, I'll give you a hint. I've been doing this kind of cheesy thing. You might regard it as slightly cheesy, but it's working for me. I am assigning a key word and hopefully a one-syllable word. It might not work out that it's a one-syllable word, but for every chapter that we've read so far, so we're today we're in the fourth chapter, I have assigned a single word for each chapter that I think encapsulates the essence of that chapter, okay? So chapter one, Emmanuel, God with us, the word that I, in fact, I'll show you, the word that I wrote at the top, you can do this if you want. This is just a little thing that I like to do. I love things that help me to sort of remember and systematize the ideas. I wrote the word, I don't know if you can see it there. I wrote the word big, right? Big ideas, cosmic perspective, grand narrative. So that was my word for chapter number one. I will bet for those of you that were with us for chapter two, the chosen people, somebody should be able to guess what my word is there because I actually said the whole chapter can be distilled down. Oh, somebody got it. I'll come back to that in a second. You can distill chapter two, the chosen people down to a single word. Does anybody remember what that word was? She uses it like 10 times. Good job, Christian, you got it. Christian Hoday, one of my dear, closest friends, a pastor in Michigan, he got it exactly right. Okay, good, I see it coming in, but that's exactly right. So that's what I've written here at the top of chapter two, but that chapter can be summarized. God did this, but Israel did this. God did, but God did, but God did, but. Okay, very good. How about yesterday's chapter? Yesterday's chapter was titled The Fullness of Time. Now, these are not always words that occur in the chapter. For example, the word big, as far as I'm aware, doesn't occur in chapter one particularly. The word but did occur like 10 times in chapter two. My word from yesterday, oh, somebody got it. God bless you, Karen. Karen Capers got it exactly right. And the word is dark. The word is dark. And again, I, I would imagine that she probably actually does use the word. I didn't look for it specifically in chapter three, but I'll bet it's there. We talked about how Ellen White is painting this dark, dreary, gloomy picture, and we will only appreciate the profundity and incandescence of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God insofar as we understand the darkness of the world. And she paints this really incredible picture. We talked about the oscillating rhythm of yesterday's chapter back and forth between the Jewish world and the Gentile world, the Jewish world and the Gentile world. And in both cases, she paints a very dark picture. So what about today? Did anybody pick up a word that you could summarize today's, and the hint, this is the hint for the, the, the song that I was running around this morning singing. Okay, it's right here. Here's our chapter today. Unto you a savior. There's our chapter and does anybody have a guess? Glory, good guess. Light, good guess. Another glory, good guess. Yet, good guess. No, these aren't it. It's a word she uses five times in the chapter. I mean, it just jumped out at me. I was like, whoa, this is clearly the theme of this chapter. And it stands in stark contrast. Uh, redeem, no, light. No, light is a good guess. Light's a very good guess because yesterday was dark. Today Okay, there you go. Laura Hasty got it. Exactly right. For me, for my money, for my devotion, the word that I wrote there was the word joy. Joy. And so you can probably guess what hymn I was running around singing this morning, right? What's, what was it? Joy to the world. Joy to the world, right? Let me just read you the lyrics from this incredible hymn written by Isaac Watts in the 18th century. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. 
let every heart prepare him room, which is obviously a play on the fact that there was no room in the inn. So if there's not room for him in the inn, maybe there can be room for him in your heart. Brilliant. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing, right? Nature because it's the creator, heaven because the angels appeared to the shepherds, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. Verse two, joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, right? All creation is singing for joy, singing with joy. Repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Verse three, there's only four verses. No more let sin and sorrow grow. That was yesterday's chapter, right? Sin and sorrow and darkness were growing and so Watts here says he, he gets it. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Of course, this is a reference to Genesis 3, right? He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The thorns, the curse, brilliant. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. As far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Fourth and final verse from Watts, joy to the world here. He rules the world with truth and grace. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The wonders of his love, the wonders of his love. And so this morning, I'm in the shower. I'm like, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And my friend Greg overhears that and says, you must be in love. And I'm like, yeah, I am in love with Jesus. So quick prayer and we're off to the races. Father in heaven, bless us this morning as we dwell uh, for the next several moments on the great theme of joy. And Father, we land now, having moved past the three table-setting chapters, uh, the opening chapters of the Desire of Ages, we are now in, in the exposition of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And so be with us, Father. May joy fill our hearts and may every one of us today have a little spring in our step, a little, a little smile on our face, a little happiness in our heart that maybe wasn't there before we read this chapter. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we are. We are in The Desire of Ages, chapter four, unto you a savior. And as I said, right at the top, I've written joy and we'll highlight joy as it comes up. Okay, a number of things jump out at me here. And one of them I've already mentioned, and that is that yesterday we had a theme of darkness and gloom and, and a dreary, depressing context. And today, by way of contrast, we are into this, you know, light-filled evening where the angels appear in their incandescent glory to the waiting, conversing shepherds. And so it's a, it's a purposeful change of scene, right, from darkness to light and from depression to joy. And you can summarize, this is, I'm actually gonna get slightly ahead of myself because we'll return to this theme at the very, very end when we do the rubric. But the, the essence of this chapter is found in the very first sentence. And Ellen White often does a very good job of this. Pay close attention in the writings of Ellen White, and any good writer really does this. This is a feature of most good writers. Um, pay attention to the opening paragraph and opening sentence and to the closing paragraph and closing sentence. And here in the opening sentence, we are basically given a signal as to what the whole chapter is going to be about. And here it is. The king of glory stooped low to take humanity. 
That's what the chapter is going to be about. And of course, that condescension, that stooping, that accommodation to the material, physical, human world um, is a manifestation of his glory, the king of glory. And so the king of glory stooped low to take humanity. She then does a very cool thing, which I absolutely love, and I believe is one of the great themes in the whole of scripture. In fact, I actually wrote here in the margin, if you can see, I wrote the word fascinating, fascinating. And one, two, three times, she uses a very important concept. She uses the same word twice and a similar word, a synonym. Again, let me read it to you here. She says, I'll just read it right through. The king of glory stooped low to take humanity. I'm in paragraph one, page 44, uh, 43 of the original pagination. Rude and, rude and foreboding were his earthly surroundings. His glory was veiled. And we've talked about that already, that he was manifested, that he was shown, that he was disclosed because he had veiled or hidden his glory. She says that here again. His glory was veiled. And then this key word, and you've got to pay attention to these words. The word is that, that. And in my version here, I've actually double underlined the word that. Everybody see that? That. And in the margin here, I wrote fascinating. That. Okay. And when you see the word that, not always, but very often, you can, you can get a better sense of the meaning of that by inserting the word so. So that. And it, and it makes it pop a little more. You'll get the connection, right? The, the sequence. And so let me read it. I'm going to insert the word so, and you'll have a real feel for the shape of what she's saying here. Right at the outset, again, pay attention to those opening paragraphs. Here we go. His glory was veiled so that the majesty of his outward form might not become an object of attraction. That's the theme. This is a major biblical theme that God draws by his beauty. He does not drive by his power. Okay? Major biblical theme. God's desire is to draw by the beauty of his character and not drive by the power of his nature, his essential nature and ontology. And there are a great many verses to this effect, right? Like if you just think about some of the most important and crucial verses in the Bible hinge on the idea of drawing or wooing or attracting two that quickly come to mind. Uh, in the New Testament, John chapter 12, verse 32, when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw... I will attract, I will woo all people to myself. And then one of my very favorite verses in the Old Testament, anticipating Messiah. In fact, let me just read it to you. Let me just read it to you. This is a verse that anticipates Messiah. I think I put my marker here. I didn't. Okay, I didn't. Let me just find it real quick. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. Here it is. You ready? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. Yahweh has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness. And that's a very important Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. Therefore, with loving kindness, God says, Yahweh says, I have drawn you. Okay, this is a very important idea. God by his power, God by his nature, if he opted to, if he chose to, possesses the resources to drive everyone to him right? But this would be compulsion. This would be coercion. This is not what God is after. What God is after is not to drive by the nature of his power and the power of his nature, but to draw by the beauty of his character. And you can know that that's the case because she uses the word that. Let me read it again. 
His glory was veiled so that the majesty of his outward form, speaking of his divinity, might not become an object of attraction. She continues, he shunned all outward display. I'm in paragraph one. Riches, worldly honor, human greatness can never save a soul from death. Jesus purposed that no attraction, there it is, the second time, no attraction of an earthly nature should call men to his side, to his worship, to loyalty. And then the final sentence here, uh, the final sentence I'm going to read, there's one more sentence in the paragraph, only, only, and I've double underlined that here, that's a key word, right? Like that is a key word, I double underlined it. Only the beauty of heavenly truth must draw those who would follow him. Now just think about, think about the invitation of Jesus, follow me. We're gonna to get to that obviously as we get deeper and deeper into the dusty streets of ancient Palestine. But, but the invitation to follow is that Jesus is out front and he's drawing us forward. He's attracting us forward. If God was driving us, he wouldn't be in front of us, he'd be behind us, right? So think about that. Think about that phrase, follow me. He's out front, he's leading, we're being drawn and that's exactly what she says. Only the beauty of heavenly truth must draw those who would follow him. And so the first thing that jumped out at me here, morning, Jabel. Morning. Snow day. So I, I just love this idea that Jesus, the king of glory, the majesty of heaven, is going to clothe, he's going to veil the incandescent glory of divinity with humanity such that the thing that attracts us to him will not be his nature, but his character. Very, very awesome, big biblical idea, super important. So God draws by his beauty. He doesn't drive by his power and his nature. Then I'm in paragraph two. I'm in paragraph two, again, page 44 in the types and symbols, 43 in the original pagination. And Ellen White, she does this at least twice in this chapter, maybe three times at least twice, because I marked them down. She switches to an angelic perspective. She switches to a cosmic perspective. And yesterday we talked about that. In our chapter yesterday, where our theme was dark, I mentioned that if you had been an observer of the condition of the world, both the Jewish and the Gentile world, if you had been an observer, like an angelic journalist, very likely your assessment of God's timing would have been that he was late, right? Like God's late, he missed his opportunity. He was asleep at the steering wheel of the universe. He was late. And so Ellen White will often do this. In fact, if you've read much of her writings, this is a feature of her writing. She just moves seamlessly back and forth, purposefully between the world that is seen and the world that is unseen. From the human perspective, boom, to the angelic perspective. And this is actually gonna be a place that will end in our rubric because she's obviously doing this purposefully and she tells us that she does it purposefully. But she switches to this angelic perspective. Second paragraph begins, the angels had wondered at the glorious plan of redemption. They watched to see how the people of God would receive his son. And then she goes through and paints this picture that can be summarized by the word that she uses two times. And the word is indifference. Indifference. I'm on the next page now, page 45. Uh, the last uh, sentence of that paragraph, yet Jerusalem was not preparing to welcome her redeemer. Right? First sentence of the next paragraph, with amazement, the heavenly messengers beheld the indifference, the indifference. And then she uses that word a little bit later in the same paragraph. The same indifference pervaded the land of Israel. So the word indifference means 
apathy, right? A disinterest, a, a carelessness, like, oh, oh, really? Oh, the world's redeemer has showed up? It's like how I feel about superhero movies, right? I was talking about how I don't like them. People are like, whoa, the new whatever superhero movies coming out. I'm like, eh, all right, whatever. Maybe if I'm ever on a plane sometime and I have absolutely nothing to do and I'm completely bored out of my mind, I might watch the first 10 minutes. Like, I just can't get into them. So that kind of, that kind of indifference is the angelic perspective. She's describing their astonishment, their incredulity, because they're all waiting. Where did I put my glasses? They're all waiting absolutely enthusiastic and energetic about announcing the arrival of the world's redeemer, and she uses the word indifferent. Now, in that same chapter, second sentence here, with amazement the heavenly messengers, in fact, the same sentence, with amazement the heavenly messengers beheld the indifference of that people, and here, this is key, this shows again that Ellen White understood this larger biblical theology about the role of the call and covenant of Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Here it is. The indifference of that people whom God had called to communicate to the world the light of sacred truth. Okay? So, so Ellen White understands, as did all of the New Testament writers and the Old Testament prophets, that God's call of Abraham was never regional. It was never parochial. It was always designed to be a global and inclusive call. And again, I've said this before, but you get that right in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I'll bless you to the end that you will be a blessing. And so, so of course, because of insularity and insubordination, which we've talked about, God's intent and purpose was seemingly thwarted. But one of the great themes of the gospel writers is that Jesus is going to show up as the very embodiment, the very enfleshing of Israel. Jesus will become Israel. And that's where the story is headed. Uh, she then quotes uh, that the Messiah would be born as the descendant of Abraham and David, right? Right here, Abraham and David, which I wrote in the margin here, Matthew chapter one, verse one, right? Remember, you can tell the story of the trajectory of scripture in three passages, Genesis 12, one to three, that's the embryonic initial covenant with Abraham. Then Matthew chapter one, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then also Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. All of this unity, you're all one in Christ, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. On what grounds, Paul? What gives you the right to erase all these social, cultural, theological, economic distinctions? Oh, he says, the promise of Abraham. The promise. The promise that's encapsulated in that great prophecy of Isaiah. My house, my sanctuary, my temple, says Yahweh, will be a house of prayer for all people, all nations. And so uh, she picks up on that very same point. Another very cool thing in this paragraph, this jumped out at me. Uh, about midway through the paragraph, she's speaking of the religious leaders who are indifferent, apathetic, unaware, listless. She says, check this out. If you were with us yesterday, this will pop. This is going to pop. They rehearsed, speaking of the religious leaders, they rehearsed their meaningless prayers and performed their rites of worship to be seen by men. Well, what does that sound like? To rehearse and perform. To rehearse and perform. Let me read it to you. I'll quote it directly from yesterday. Uh, they had looked, 
They had ceased to look, speaking of the religious leaders, the priests in the temple, they had ceased to look beyond the symbol to the things signified. In presenting the sacrificial offering, they were, I see it, God bless you, you got it, several people putting it up. They were as actors in a play. Actors in a play. And so she uses that same language here. They rehearsed and performed. They rehearsed and performed. Because remember, the light that was in them had become darkness. So she's using, the, she's taking those same strands, those same strings that she's, she's talked about in the last chapter, right? Those three table setting chapters, the cosmic perspective, the field of view began to narrow, narrow, narrow. And then now she's pulling some of those strands into the story. And the strand that she pulls here is, is that the religious leaders were largely unaware, indifferent to, and unprepared for the arrival of the world's redeemer. Uh, then comes the first use of the word joy, the first of five the very end of that same paragraph, hearts selfish and world engrossed were untouched by the joy that thrilled all heaven. Only a few were longing to behold the unseen to these heaven's embassy was sent. And those few are, of course, the shepherds. By the way, I don't know if you read Luke 2, 1 to 20 before you, I did. And I, I would advise you to do the same. When you find right here, you know, the chapter uh, the passage in the Gospels upon which this chapter will be based. My advice is to read that first because you'll get insights. You'll get insights, incredible insights. In fact, I read this and then I went back to Luke chapter two and I was like, oh, of course, it's right there. Um, then, okay, what do I got here? So I got the indifference. Uh, Israel's call and purpose to advertise God to the world was seemingly thwarted, but God will keep his promise to Abraham. But the means by which he will keep his promise to Abraham will be Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham. That's a big idea, a big motif that we will come back to again and again and again, like a beautiful chorus in a great song. Jesus becomes Israel. Jesus becomes Israel. Jesus becomes Israel. No wonder he called not eight disciples, not 10 disciples, not 14 disciples, 12 disciples to be consistent with the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. Jesus is relaunching, reimagining, re-engineering what Israel was supposed to be. Okay? So that's a theme. We're going to come back to that again and again and again. I have a sermon that I preached years and years ago, and I've had over the years probably hundreds of people say to me, particularly if they came from an evangelical perspective, David, that sermon changed my whole way, my whole frame of reference for understanding the New Testament. And the sermon was titled, who is the real Israel, right? Because all of the, a high percentage of the evangelical world is looking to modern day geographical regional Israel, that literal nation of Israel formed in 1948. And they're thinking something big is going to happen there. And I'm like, yeah, the reason you think that is you missed the biblical storyline that Jesus becomes Israel. Jesus himself is Israel. And we'll, we'll get into that in, in much greater detail and uh, already it's being hinted at here. Um, next paragraph then, still on page 45, 44 in the original pagination. She talks about Caesar Augustus, right? So you have the census that goes out. Everybody had to go to their home city, their hometown, and they had to register for the census. And she says something here that's mysterious, but I gotta say it. Because um, this is something, frankly, that throws a lot of people off. It just messes with people's minds how does the sovereignty of God and the providence of God interact with human free will? 
This is a big idea, okay? And I'm just going to touch on it and back away from it because there'll be more opportunity for us to talk about it. But I'm going to say something here that is oxymoronic. It's impossible. It's internally incoherent. Okay, what I mean by that is there's no such thing as a square circle because these things are mutually exclusive, right? A square has four sides and four 90-degree angles. A circle is a different geometrical figure. A circle has a center point and then every point on the line is equidistant from the center. So, so squares and circles are mutually exclusive geometrical figures. You either have a square or you have a circle. There's no such thing as a squircle, right? They cannot be um, coherently or comprehensively combined, right? So too, I'm gonna give you another squircle and that is this. God, even God, cannot predetermine or foreordain the free actions of mankind, okay? God cannot predetermine the free actions of man. And you say, well, what, what? Of course, because those two things are mutually exclusive, like a square and a circle. If something is predetermined and foreordained, then by definition, it's not also an act of free will. And so this is where people get thrown off. And the Calvinists, you know, they go way over and they say every act, including Every act you've ever made and every act that anybody's ever made was foreordained, predetermined, predestined by God, right? Now, that's the most extreme version of Calvinism. And then on the other end of the sort of theological spectrum, you have a radical uh, libertarianism whereby God's sovereignty and even his divinity is compromised by the fact that human beings make choices. So between these two poles of absolute determinism and absolute libertarianism, the truth is in here somewhere and this freaks people out, okay? They don't know where does God's providence begin and end and where does my free will begin and end. And Ellen White in this chapter doesn't, she obviously doesn't get into the philosophy of all of that or the theology of it. Time will allow us to do that in the future, but she says something that's really cool and is a window into this theological um, debate, into this conversation about the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind. Let me read it to you here. Uh, page 45, 44 in the original pagination. Listen to this. As in, the, as in old time Cyrus was called to the throne of the world's empire, that he might set the captives, that he might set free the captives of the Lord, so Caesar Augustus is made the agent for the fulfillment of God's purpose in bringing the mother of Jesus to Bethlehem. That's a very cool idea. And she walks the line, in my view, uh, from a biblical perspective, she walks it perfectly. She just, exactly the right language. I'll read it again. Caesar Augustus is made the agent for the fulfillment of God's purpose in bringing the mother of Jesus to Bethlehem. So, so, when, when it says Caesar Augustus has made the agent, it sounds like it's on this end of the sort of determinism scale. Like God did this and, and Caesar had no choice. But no, this was a free act that Caesar opted to. Now, this is, the, this is the cool thing. In fact, I wrote it here in my margin. When it says that Caesar was made the agent, it doesn't mean by God's power. It means by the... And, I hope you don't mind my, my metaphor here, the musical metaphor. It means by the symphonic and orchestral providence that he had arranged. Okay, see, 
a bulldozer is not subtle. You got this great big giant bulldozer and it can push over trees and make, you know, ravines and create large mounds of dirt. God is not a bulldozer. You're not just pushing human history around and saying, okay, this goes here. And No, no, God is a symphony conductor. He is working not to override the free choices of human beings, including Caesar Augustus. He's working with their choices and navigating this incredible path forward, whereby at times it appears as though his purpose will be thwarted, but his providence prevails. And his providence doesn't prevail because he's so powerful. His providence prevails because he's so wise. He's able to shift and to move and to fashion circumstances as a symphony conductor. You've got the strings here and the brass here and the woodwinds here and the percussion here. And God sees all of it, every interaction from every agement, every possibility. In fact, just very, very briefly, God not only sees what will happen, God sees what could have happened, okay? God sees not only what is, he sees what might have been. And that, that sense in which God sees not only what is, but what might have been, is actually, this is a, there's a really fascinating word for this, a really fascinating concept. This is what's referred to as God's middle knowledge, Middle knowledge, a knowledge of things that might have happened, that could have happened. These are what are called counterfactuals. The thing that did happen is the fact, and the thing that could have happened is a counterfactual. And I'm going to tell you something here that's going to blow your mind. God has knowledge not only of all the facts, God has knowledge of all the counterfactuals. He knows every possible thing that could have happened. And he sees and he anticipates ahead of time and in glorious symphonic orchestral coordination, he brings about his providential will, not by the might of his power, but by the wisdom of his creativity and his sovereignty. And so this is a very important idea. Caesar made a free decision and God leveraged that free decision to be a part of his sovereign will. Okay? I said yesterday, and you might have missed it, God's purpose can be thwarted situationally. I'm going to say that again. God's poor purpose can be thwarted situationally in, in, a, in a micro setting. For example, right now, I could, I could do a bad thing. I can't think of any bad thing I could do. Okay, I, could, I, I can't think of anything. You could walk up to somebody and punch them in the nose, right? That's not God's will. God's will is not for you to punch somebody in the nose. You could go spend all of your money on, you know, foolish things. Yeah, you can thwart God's will in the, in the sort of situational, you know, micro circumstances, but God's sovereign will will prevail, okay? And so what God is always doing is he's navigating with and around and through and by the free choices of human beings and then bringing about his grand and glorious and climactic purpose. And so she says, Caesar Augustus was made the agent. And of course, the Old Testament example that throws people off big time is where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people say, whoa, 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 where does God's sovereignty and God's power end and, and Pharaoh's free will begin? Now, we're not going to get, in fact, I've already gone a little deeper than I thought I would there. Suffice it to say, it is an impossibility for God to foreordain and to predetermine the free actions of mankind. So what God is doing in this grand incredible narrative of the human experience and salvation and the fall, he is navigating through and by human free will and bringing it about to redound to his ultimate purpose. And Caesar didn't know. 
right? And Herod later, these guys don't know that they are in their free choices actually fulfilling the purpose and providence of God. It's incredible. Like we talked about yesterday, God, God, can, do, God can work with plan B. God can work with plan C. God can work with plan D. God is infinitely wise. And I just want to make this point one last time, and I know I've already said it. What makes God so awesome is not just, is not primarily the power of his nature, because God by nature is what he is. What makes God so awesome is the wisdom and beauty of his character, right? That's a way better God, a, a, symf, a, a symphony conductor version of God, an, or, an orchestra conductor version of God is a way more attractive and appealing God than a bulldozer. God is not a bulldozer. He's not just plowing through human history and making stuff happen. And he's not just plowing through your life and my life and making stuff happen. He's drawing, he's wooing, he's inviting, he's attracting. Yeah, follow me. Let's go on this adventure together. This is the importance of the word cooperation or co-mission, a mission of two. God's infinite will, his perfect will, and then the human will. Okay. I'm on the next page now. Uh, she tells the story of, of uh, Mary and Joseph uh, traversing, I'm reading now, traversing the entire length of the narrow street, vainly seeking a place of resting for the night. And uh, she, there is no room in the inn, right? Just like Isaac Watts' hymn. There is no room in the inn, so make room in your heart. Make room in your heart. Make sure when Jesus is walking down that long street of the heart of, of David Asherick or or Mary, or, or Kevin, or, or whatever your name is, that there's room in the inn. Make sure there's room in the inn. Uh, then next paragraph here, page 46, 47 of the original pagination, um, she switches back to the angelic cosmic perspective. She switches back. And incidentally, she uses the word drawn right in the middle of it, right there, bam, drawn. I'll read it to you. She says, men know it not, but the news fills heaven with rejoicing. By the way, the root word of rejoicing is joy. So you could use that as a sixth, you know, instantiation or instance of the word joy. Men know it not, but the news fills heaven with rejoicing, with a deeper and more tender earnest. The holy beings from the world of light are drawn to earth. Oh, this is cool. This is very cool. So the angels are drawn to the presence of Jesus, right? Very cool just as we are. And so she switches back to that cosmic angelic perspective. The word joy occurs again later in this chapter, uh, that they might have shared the joy of heralding the birth of Jesus. Um, then she does this very cool thing where she switches from historical to modern application. And this is another thing that Ellen White does very well. Not only does she move from the scene to the unseen scene to the unseen scene to the unseen, she does that very well, just dropping in the great controversy motif the other cool thing that she does is that she can just move instantly from biblical application to or biblical um, exposition to personal application. Just exposition, application, exposition, application. And she does it right at the end of that chapter. She says, to those who are seeking for light and who accept it with gladness, gladness here being a synonym for joy, the bright rays from the throne of God will shine. See what she did there? Not the bright rays from the throne of God, did shine historically on the shepherds on the hills of Bethlehem. She says they will shine for those that, that accept the announcement that the Savior of the world is born with gladness. So there you go, switches. Um, next paragraph, great summary of the gospel. 
Um, in the fields where the boy David had led his flock, shepherds were still keeping watch by night. Through the silent hours, they talked together of a promised savior and prayed for the coming of the king to David's throne. Then the angel appears, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. There it is. Now, by the way, good tidings of great joy, that's just a good tidings of great joy. That's a five-word phrase for the word the gospel, right? The gospel is glad tidings of great joy. Glad tidings or good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Notice that the announcement of the gospel is preceded by the phrase, and you might have heard this before, and it's true, which is the most frequently repeated command in all of the Bible. What is the most frequently repeated, occurring some 400 times in all of the Bible, from the Old to the New Testaments? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you could summarize God's central words of encouragement and affirmation and of hope to the human race, it would have to be that phrase, right? Like God says it hundreds of times. The angels say it. Jesus says it in the New Testament. Yahweh says it in the Old Testament. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No wonder Paul, when he's writing to Timothy later, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, said, God has not given us the spirit of fear. No, God has given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. If your posture toward God is primarily a posture of fear or being afraid, you got the wrong God. You got the wrong God. Now, in fairness to people who hear the word God or the idea of God, historically, every other God, every false God, every God of human invention would certainly be a God to be afraid of. I mean, they're basically petty tyrants. They're petty tyrants. But the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping creator God, that's not a God to be afraid of. That's a God to be a friend of. You like that? I like that. That's not a God to be afraid of. I think I'm borrowing that from Dwight Nelson, right? That's not a God to be afraid of. That's a God to be a friend of. And so the angel begins, and of course, you know, the shepherds are going to be freaked out. This like glowing, shining, you know, angelic choir just appears in heaven. And so don't be afraid. God's message to you is do not be afraid. Next chapter, the chapter that begins with at these words, I just wrote in the paragraph here, great writing. This is just great writing. Let me read you this. Power, exaltation, triumph are associated with his coming. This is how people perceive of the Messiah's coming. But the angel must prepare them to recognize their savior in poverty and humiliation. Great writing. Great writing. Because the angels say there will be a sign and the sign will be a little baby in a manger. That's a weird sign. That's a weird sign for the Messiah. Well, it's not weird if you think that the historical and widely held view of how Messiah would arrive and what kind of a person he would do and what his mission would be. You wouldn't expect a child wrapped in, you know, swaddling clothes, laying in a feed trough. And so it's really cool that the angels say, here's the sign. He comes in poverty and humiliation, not in, what does she say? Power, exaltation, and triumph. Um, Then I'm at the top of the next page. Uh, 47, 48 in the original pagination, then the joy and glory could no longer be hidden and the angelic choir breaks out, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. There's the gospel again. God's posture is a posture of peace and of goodwill toward mankind. That's the gospel. Good tidings of great joy 
And then Ellen White, she just, she just does that thing where she just inserts a practical application. And she says, oh, that today the human family could recognize that song. Yes. Oh, that today the human family could recognize that God's posture toward humanity collectively and you individually is goodwill. God wants what's good for you. God wants you to be joyful. The word joy is an important word because it's better than fun. Fun is an entertainment. They're fleeting. Joy has a lasting quality, a longevity to it. And if I could say the word joy has a wholesomeness to it, right? Like fun is fleeting, but joy is lasting, right? It's, it's, joy is one of the uh, fruit of the spirit, right? It's one of the characteristics of the fruit of the spirit. Love joy, right? So this incredible joy. And I believe that the lives of Christians should be largely characterized by joy. I've been told that many times over the years. Like I just spent time a couple days ago with a fellow who's not a believer. It was in a rock climbing context and he and I had met up and uh, he said, hey, we should climb together sometime. Yeah, we should climb together sometime. Really lovely guy. His name was David actually. And uh, we spent the day climbing together, not a believer of any stripe as far as I could detect, you know, just sort of judging by the things he talked about in his language and stuff. But I was just like me. I'm like, hey, and, and I'm not swearing and I'm not carrying on. And he's like, man, you're happy. Like, man, you're all, you're, you're an upbeat kind of guy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because I'm encouraging him. Hey, you can do that. You know, I think that Christians, and, and don't get me wrong, not everybody has to be an extrovert. That's not what I'm saying. Extroversion, introversion is not this conversation. There should be a joy, a palpable, discernible, inescapable joy in the life of the follower of Jesus. Joy to the world. She then does a very cool thing. She quotes Malachi chapter four, verse two. When the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, she doesn't actually quote it. She doesn't, she doesn't put the reference down. So I put it there and then I highlighted the word healing. And the reason I did that is this is now the second time in just four chapters that she has quoted that verse. This is clearly a paradigmatic verse for Ellen White. That something about the Messiah's coming brings healing. Healing, and you probably are aware, maybe you're not, that the word for salvation in the New Testament, disozo or sozo, is the same as the word for healing. To be saved is to be healed, and God wants to heal us. He wants to heal our, he wants to heal our mind. He wants to heal our hearts. He wants to heal our bodies. He wants to heal our relationships. He wants to heal our marriages. The Old Testament even talks about God wants to heal their land. God is in the business of healing. And so I really like the fact that she quotes Malachi 4.2 there. Healing and joy go hand in hand, right? What does the Old Testament say? The proverb, a merry heart does good like a medicine. A joyful heart does good like a medicine. Uh, continuing down here, um, departing with great joy, they made known the things that they had seen and heard. So the angelic joy now becomes the shepherd's joy. And that's the great thing about joy. Joy is contagious. Joy is contagious. My joy can become your joy and your joy can become my joy. Then this, you know, this is where she actually says the very thing that she's been modeling in the chapter, uh, page 47, paragraph begins, heaven and earth are no wider apart today than when shepherds listen to the angel's song. Exactly. Heaven and earth are no farther apart today than they were back then. And again, our eyes are not capacitated to see the unseen world, the the, the angels around us, we can't see it. We can see it with the eye of faith and we can believe it. And even though there are things around us that we, by the way, there's a great many things that you cannot see. You've never seen anybody's mind, right? You've never, you've never seen your own mind. There are a great many things that we don't see that we know are real, 
right? And so this, this incredible, this incredible, oh, I love it, Jennifer, good for you. The Abide Arise collaboration is coming soon because the preaching of the gospel and psychological, mental, relational healing, these are not two things, they're one thing. Okay, they're one thing. Thank you for that, Jennifer. Thank you for that reminder. Love you so much. By the way, if you're not familiar with Jennifer Schwerzer and her incredible Abide Counseling Ministry Network, you need to familiarize yourself with. She's on Twitter. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Get to know her, Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. She's an incredible author. I've got several of her books on my shelf right here. I even took the picture for one of her books. Beautiful picture of her daughter, Kimmy. Um, Or I should say a picture of her beautiful daughter, Kimmy. The picture was just what it was. But anyway, I just love this idea that heaven and earth, she says that heaven and earth are no wider apart today than when the shepherds listen to the angel's song. God, help us to see that. Help us to see that the, the, the apparent, the illusion of separation is just that, an illusion. It's just an illusion. And um, then she says, this is a great line, to us in the common walks of life, heaven may be very near. Oh, friend, cling to that promise. To us in the common walks of life, heaven may be very near. That's how I felt this morning, man. After I read this chapter, I'm running around my house. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. My friend says to me, yeah, you're, you're in love. Yeah, you're right, I am in love. I'm in love with Jesus. Okay, last page. Last page here. Um, I love this line here. And, and this is a great way, sort of Ellen White in the last, let's see, one, two, three chapter, or three paragraphs here. She begins it by saying, the story of Bethlehem is an exhaustless theme. The story of Bethlehem is an an exhaustless theme. And then she goes straight Philippians 2. Now, she doesn't actually quote Philippians 2, 5 to 11 here. She never quotes it. She doesn't even reference it. She doesn't even use the language of it. But we've already seen that Philippians 2 is paradigmatic for her. She's already thinking, based on chapter 1, about the condescension, the descent of Jesus. He became obedient. He became like a man, obedient even to the death of to death, even the death of the cross, this condescension down. And she says, the story of Bethlehem is an exhaustless theme. And I'll just read you a few little snippets here from these final paragraphs that make it obvious that she is overwhelmed with joy. Uh, Ellen White writing, just as the gospel writers were, that, that the king of heaven, the redeemer of the earth, condescended to become a man, a, a human being. He accommodated his creation. By the way, C.S. Lewis says, this is the greatest of all miracles. The greatest of all conceivable miracles is that the creator would become subject to and involved with, at this level of intimacy, his creation. This is the greatest of all miracles. And so she says it here. um, This was about the beginning of his wonderful condescension. He, I'm quoting now, he would take man's nature. He accepted humanity. He accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. I mean, there's an idea. God had created the human genome and genetics and DNA, and he became subject to biological, chemical processes that he himself had created. I mean, it absolutely staggers the mind. Uh, She continues in the next paragraph. He came as a helpless babe, subject to the weaknesses of humanity. He was permitted to meet life's peril in common with every human soul. So there's a fundamental similarity and commonality between us and Jesus. He's not unlike us, he's like us. The New Testament makes this point again and again, and we're gonna see that. We're gonna see that Jesus became a human being. This is a mystery, it's incomprehensible. This was one of the great controversies in the first five centuries of the early church and continues to be controversial today. In what sense does Jesus bear humanity, right? How... 
what is his nature precisely? And anybody who thinks they have this figured out is delusional, right? It is an inestimable, incalculable mystery which the human mind cannot comprehend. How the infinite, illimitable, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe becomes a human being. Don't pretend like you understand it. And, and more than that, don't create a dogma upon which if people don't acquiesce to your version of it, that they're somehow, you know, they're somehow not followers of Jesus. They're so, no, I think that we can have a sufficient humility and elasticity in our understanding of the incarnation. And we can just affirm two absolutely factual biblical truths. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And anybody who pretends to understand the exact nature and the division of how that all works is kidding themselves. He was God enough, right? He was fully God. He was God enough to be our perfect atoning sacrifice, right? Because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats or any created being should take away sin. Jesus was God, but he's also our example, he is our example, and to the degree that he is our example, he must have been a real human being, right? As she says here, to, to meet life's peril in common with every human soul and to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it. He was a human being. He was thirsty, and he was, he was tired, and he was wearied, and he could be down, and he could be up, and he could be filled with joy, and he could have incredulity, and he was subject to the laws of heredity. And so she goes through this. This is all Philippians 2. And in fact, I'll just quickly read that and close on that. Then we'll do our rubric. Listen to Philippians 2 here, maybe with new ears. Beginning in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't have to steal divinity because he was divine. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. Okay, think that through. Why did he make himself of no reputation? Because no one else could do it. Only God could do this to himself. No external power, no external agency could do this to God. So God did it himself. Listen again. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Well, why did he humble himself? Because who else is going to humble God? He made himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I mean, the fact that Jesus died is proof positive that he was human. He was a human being. And again, I'm not here, and there will be opportunity for us going forward to talk more about the nature of his divinity and the nature of his humanity. But anybody who pr pretends to understand the mingling of these two seemingly, seemingly incommensurable, incommensurable, um, inco non-combinable realities, is, they're kidding themselves. I talked earlier about a square and a circle. You can't have a squircle. Well, everybody would have thought you either have God or you have a human being, but you can't, you can't have a God man. But in fact, that's what Jesus is. And, uh, this is what brings us great joy, that God is drawing us. He became one of us. And the extent to which he can sympathize with us and the com which he calls the common walks of life is really encouraging. And I just love the idea that, that God is leading by his providence and not just by his power, by his character and not by his nature. Okay, so quickly, the rubric, in closing, the rubric. 
Um, in our rubric, we go through basically five points. Four of them are questions. What is the point? Who is the person? How should I pray? Where in my life can I practice this? And then the fifth point of the rubric is we pray for the promise of the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to, to do these things. Okay, so here we go. Number one, what is the point? Well, again, here, the point of this chapter is an easy one. It's that God became a human being, right? That's the opening sentence. God stooped low to take upon himself humanity. So the point of this chapter is that God really did become a human being. Number two, who is this person? Well, what I wrote down here, and I, I hope you like this, this is the direction that I obviously went, is the person of God, the person of Jesus, is someone who wants to be known and followed because of his character, not just by his nature. He wants to lead by providence and not power, which just makes me want to follow him, right? That just makes me want to follow him. He's that kind of a guy. He's that kind of a God. He's that kind of a being. Yeah. When Jesus said, follow me, there was an attraction. There was a, there was, there was a beauty in it. Right? There was no force. There was no coercion. There was no compulsion. No, yeah. Hey, fellas, let's go on an adventure together. Come with me. Ladies, come with me. Come be... I love it. So who is the person? Someone who wants to be known by character, not nature, and providence, not power. Number three, how should I pray? Okay, this is an easy one again for me. Yeah, very good. Very good, Christian. First Timothy chapter 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God took on flesh. It's like, nobody understands it. We can understand certain aspects of the parameters, but, you know, we do not know this in the same way that we know, for example, what a square is and what a circle is and how they cannot be combined. We just need to exercise a little bit of elasticity and a lot of humility. Here we go. How should I pray? For me, this is an easy one. I'm going to pray like this. God, let my life be characterized by joy, not fear. Let my life be characterized by joy, not fear. God's will for my life is to be a happy, joy-filled life. God's will for your life is to be a happy, joy-filled life. And God says to you today, whatever you're facing, economic, familial, environmental, I mean, listen, the pandemic, we're in a global pandemic right now, and there are already preliminary indications that people have suffered in all kinds of terrible ways, right? Depression is up, and suicide is up, and uh, uh, drug use is up, and Unemployment is up and depression is up and teen, teen suicide. I read a story just the other day about a 12-year-old boy that hung himself. People are afraid. We live in a world where people are afraid. This is actually one of the signs of the times. It says that men's heart will be failing them for fear. And so I want to pray, God, in a climate of fear, in a climate of uncertainty, in a climate of doubt, I want my life to be characterized by joy. Because I have that, what, what's the old children's song? I got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I want it to be such a part of the fiber and fabric of who I am. It's not generated by me. It's generated by the power of the gospel and the application of the gospel by the spirit. I want to be a joyful person. So that's my prayer. God, help me not to live by fear, but to live by joy. Number four, where in my life can I practice this? Well, I'm going to practice this in, the, in this sense. How do I perceive and portray God? How am I perceiving and portraying God? And by the way, these two are interrelated. How you perceive is how you will portray to others. So I want to perceive God as he is there in a feeding trough, 
in a feeding trough, in a little, you know, not well-known town, wrapped, you know, a, a, a baby, a mysterious, wonderful, miraculous baby to a young teenage girl and a, and a totally confused dad. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how that happened, <laughs> right? Like, here's, here's, I want, I want to paint a picture of God in my life and in my family and in my interactions with others that makes people say, man, that God must be pretty cool. He must be pretty awesome. And so that's how I'm going to practice it. I hope you enjoyed this. The, the chapter title is Unto You a Savior. And I want you to just say this right now with me, if you would. Just say this right now, wherever you are, unless maybe you're you know, sitting in your work cubicle or something, this might be a little weird. But if you're in a place where you can say out loud, I want you to say this, unto me a Savior is born. Because when we, when we collectivize it and say unto us, it doesn't have quite the same resonance. Say that to me. Say, unto me a Savior is born. Say that. Unto me a Savior is born. Friend, God's posture toward you is a posture of peace and of goodwill and of glad tidings of great joy. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to perceive and portray you as you are. And clearly, clearly, unmistakably, in coming, as it says in Isaiah 53, without, without form and comeliness, Jesus had no beauty that he, should, that he should be desired. Father, you wanted to be attractive. Jesus wanted to be attractive in another way. Um, Lord, by the profundity of, of who he is and his character. And Lord, we are drawn to that. Here we are 2,000 years later reading this story, absolutely captivated by this story that the infinite, illimitable, eternal God would become a man. And not just a man, that he would be found, as the angels told the shepherds, in poverty and in humiliation. You'll see a sign, a little baby in a feeding trough. They must have thought, what? A baby in a feeding trough is somehow Messiah, the Messiah that's going to come and is going to kick butt and absolutely wail on the Romans. Father, they had a lot to learn. Man, the Jewish nation, the whole world had a lot to learn in, in the first century. But Father, we got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to learn. The world has a lot to learn. And Father, insofar as we do understand who you are, fill us with your spirit that we might perceive you aright, that we might perceive you correctly. And then, like Israel of all was called, called to do and called to be, may we not only perceive you aright, may we portray you and present you aright. Father, help us to do that. Teach us how to do that. Help us to remember today, unto us a Savior is born. Joy to the world. And Father, maybe, maybe, just maybe, somebody will overhear us singing joy to the world. Maybe there'll be a pep in our step today. God is with us. God is for us. And God in Christ became one of us. And that is something that can be celebrated. Father, we celebrate that now. Thank you for the DA with DA challenge. Thank you for this book. And thank you above all, most of all, for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.